0: So let's get down to business with another episode of Start a Puzzle, brought to you by FullScale.io. And
1: we are
0: Back. Thank you for joining us for yet another episode of the Startup Hustle podcast. I am your host, Lauren Conway, founder and CEO of Innovate Her KC. Today's episode of Startup Hustle is sponsored by TriNet, the fastest way to HR expertise. Now, most of us know and understand that small to medium sized businesses face some pretty unique HR challenges. I know I certainly do. TriNet is a full service HR provider that offers 24 7 support. They can help you handle your toughest HR questions. You're free to focus on your people and your growing business. So visit Trinet.com to learn more or click the link in the show notes. And thank you, Trinet. Uh, So I am, I don't really know how to, to introduce our guest because I am so honored to have this guest with us um you know our one of our producers reached out to me and asked me for give me 10 people that you want to have on the show and this individual was on the list um with a bullet i i have wanted to have her on the show for quite some time and so we have with us today Lisa Benson. And Lisa is founder and CEO of Winning Truths International, as well as author of Anchored in Bias, Fired Over White Tears. And she just has a wealth of lived experience to share with us. Um, we're going to be talking about some pretty pretty serious issues. Um, and hopefully we're going to have a little bit of fun just because I like Lisa a lot. But um, we're, we're, this is going to be a really good conversation. And I have to say, Lisa, thank you so
1: much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
0: Oh, I'm so glad. Well, well, let's, without further ado, let's hop right into it. And I'm going to say, I, you know what? I'm just going to ask the general question. Tell us, tell us about you. Tell us about your journey and how you came to be the Lisa Benson who stands before us today.
1: Well, I spent um, actually more than 20 years working in television news. I'm actually a graduate of Clark Atlanta University, which is an HBCU, and I I pursued a communications degree there and I started hopping from market to market in television news shortly after graduation and which led me ultimately to Kansas City, Missouri, where I spent more than 14 years working at the NBC affiliate here. And after my own experience with workplace bias and just not understanding why I was not having the same opportunities for growth as my coworkers, I, um, it led me to the EEOC office, which led me essentially to a federal courtroom for a discrimination and retaliation case in a federal courtroom. And that two week trial just really just helped me to kind of see where I was. And it taught me so much. It taught me just so much about the reality of the racial construct that we are all participants of in this country. It taught me so much about my internalized racial inferiority based on how we all, again, present in this country and how we've been socialized in this country to the way we've been raced in this country, especially as a Black woman. And so on that journey, I was just so hungry to learn more. The more I learned, the more I wanted to learn. I remember um, someone referring me to actually after, oh, I would have to back it up. And I was ultimately fired from my previous employer for reading an article on Facebook entitled How White Women Use Strategic Tears to Avoid Accountability. And I read that article on a Wednesday night at 9.06, because obviously I remember the date and time, because clearly um, it was a part of the trial. And um, the thing about that article that resonated with me was the tone police because after I, you know, launched my complaint with my employer, all of a sudden, the tone of my voice became an issue. It was like, oh, your tone is so inappropriate or um, so that article resonated with me because she talked about tone policing. So that's why I shared it. And plus the part about the white tears, my sister had um, experiences with that. So I shared it in hopes of my sister seeing the article as well. But ultimately that's what led to me being suspended and ultimately fired from my former employer. And so that understanding my lived experiences with workplace bias, the lack of opportunity with my former employer, and then being fired for sharing an article that I didn't understand why they were, in fact, the reason I was suspended, they told me I'd created a hostile work environment by sharing the article. And so all these things are happening to a very adult version of myself, and I'm absolutely dumbfounded as to what's going on with me. So that just sent me on this learning journey for myself of trying to understand it, if nothing else, to make sure it never happened again. I had to get this because I can never allow this to happen again, because at this point, my livelihood was now taken from me. My ability to pursue the career that I wanted was taken from me. So I needed to understand the root of this, what was going on with me. So that led me to church basements, that led me to anti-racism trainings, that led me to Robin D'Angelo's work, um, White Fragility. Yeah, which was eye-opening. And I um, honor her work and I honor the fact that she will tell you in her work and in person that her work is inspired by the voices, by amplifying the voices of people of color, specifically Black women. And so that led me to Cornell University where I pursued my diversity equity inclusion certification that led me to Northwestern University where I pursued yet another certification that led me to the University wow. of Florida, where I pursued another, another one. And so, then that led no, me to writing you, my books.
0: i have to say that you are highly qualified. <laughs> To do to do this work, both and- both drawing on your own experience, <laughs> but then also just a crap ton of training. Okay, <laughs> no, I love that. Well, and I do. I, I have like six different directions that we're gonna go at some point. But the first thing that I I, I just I really want to say this, and I would like to, for our listeners at home, when we talk about white fragility, um, you know, as a white lady, I I hear this term a lot. Um, and, and I, I just want to I just want to use this platform for a moment to say that white fragility is a real thing. When someone comes to you and says to you, I am experiencing this problem. This is my lived experience, the appropriate response is not to get horrified or offended or angry. The appropriate response is to listen and figure out does this apply to me? And if so, what can I do? to fix it, right? You know, somebody comes to you with a skinned knee and your response is, okay, like, what's the next step? Get a Band-Aid, you know, whatever it t- Look to the next step. Um, so I just, I wanted to say that really, really quickly. Um, White Fragility, great book. It is, it's a real problem. Um, okay, so I, I wanna take us back, and I kind of to the basics and I, I'm gonna draw on your trainer experience here. Um, but what is unconscious bias?
1: Well, really, when we talk about unconscious biases, we are talking about the automatic judgments that come from pre-existing knowledge pathways already in our brains. And those pre-existing knowledge pathways are usually founded in our childhood experiences, our upbringing, um, advertising, media. Media is a huge one that we don't sure. realize. The I mean, honestly, working more than 20 years in media, I didn't realize the impact I was having, we were having on really the subconscious minds of our viewers, but that's a reality. When you don't have real lived experiences, is with real people of different and diverse backgrounds and whatever that may be, that may be yeah. differently abled. The way you learn about these different identity groups and communities of people is usually on television, right? And usually that's a very singular, and very basic definition. And so when we think about Native Americans on reservations, I have an idea in my mind as to how they live, what they look like, but I've never been on a reservation. Where did I get that mind's eye from? Where did I get that idea from? Outside of the television, outside of film. And we have to be mindful of that, understanding that's why it's so important for us to be very intentional and deliberate about making real authentic connections with people of different backgrounds. And it's not just race. It really is the identity groups across the spectrum. But we have to understand that when we're not being intentional about getting really holistic views of people of diverse backgrounds, we are honestly defaulting to whatever we saw on television. And so when we get to the reality of the Tamir Rice's of the world, we understand that um, the idea of looking at a black man in a hoodie, why do we think that's a threat? Unless of course, you've watched every other program on television and black men who create, you know, create That um, do crimes on television are oftentimes black men with hoodies on. I mean, just these images that pop up in our mind is what we're kind of seeing in our real life. And so us being just mindful of how those biases are manifested, how they come to be, and us being um, willing to police them as individuals. So we're not treating people unfairly based on their identity group or just random characteristics that are part of their identity.
0: Yeah, I just I, I think back to like the you know Michael Ferguson and uh, or sorry uh, not Michael Ferguson but Ferguson um, what happened in Ferguson what happened with um, you know any number of black men and women who have been shot by police and when you think about the news stories that come about as a result of that like often you will see the person of color the black person you'll see their mug shots but then you'll see like when the same thing happens with a, a white person you'll see oh you know they were a they were a stellar scholar athlete you know I mean these are like media representations that particularly if you don't know people of color but you know if you don't know black people like that is what you know of them that is what you see um and that's that's a really scary thing so i want to ask you um and this is a little personal so feel free to you know push back on me but you know talking about unconscious bias how did it manifest itself in your career what was your your personal experience of of the bias that you that you underwent
1: That's interesting because my entire career, I took great pride in really being a bulldog reporter, right? I was the type of reporter who would ask tough questions, who wanted to do the tough stories. And I took, that was part of my identity, honestly. But there was a part of me that, again, based on my own internalized racial inferiority, I just kind of owned these monikers about myself, if you will. And so for me, the bias showed up in me only being able to fit in this one hole. Like as long as I was willing to cover the crime stories, I was willing to work the night's shift. I was willing to work the weekend shifts. But when I wanted to elevate into maybe an anchor position, even though I had held anchor positions in my previous market, so I knew I knew how to anchor and I knew I had experience in that space, that was problematic. When I wanted to grow into an investigative reporter position at my previous station, even though I was an Emmy award-winning journalist for continuing coverage, for some reason that was problematic. And so it became clear to me along my journey that as long as I would be, I would allow myself to be forced into this box. As long as I fit in the box of a bulldog reporter who covered crime stories in the urban community, then I fit, then I was acceptable. But when I started challenging that, for one, my own career development, but absolutely for the opportunity to make more money, right? Because yeah. when you don't move in position, you don't move in pay when you stay with the same employer. And so right. all of these things, as again, as long as I was willing to stay the course and maintain the status quo, I was fine. They liked me. I was accepted, it was only when I started challenging that and started pushing back and saying, why not me? Why can't I grow into an anchor position? Why can't I grow into an investigative reporter position? And they didn't have any legitimate reasons as to why not. It became painfully clear that there was something else going on other than whether or not I was qualified for the position. And that's where the biases show up. And when you look at media across the board, I feel like now we are absolutely changing based on the reality of the world we're looking at unfold before us. And that, like you said, the Michael Browns, the Timmy Rises, the Trayvon Martins of the world have helped us to see that we're looking at Black and Brown people a little differently. There's something going on there. And so now you fast forward now to where we have George Floyds of the world, where we watch them die over and over and over again on the news. And so now we're willing to have this conversation, or at least broach the conversation. But that was not true when I was going through this. You know, my trial right. was in um, 16, 17, 18 is when I had this conversation impact with my former employer. And so I I'd learned through my own learning journey again, that these were the biases. Like as long as I fit into this box, I was acceptable. But if I was trying to challenge any the, where I was, then that was problematic. And soon I became the problem.
0: Yeah. Well, and I and I find it interesting. You you said earlier, you know, when when you would be, well, you mentioned tone policing is what you mentioned, and I, I find tone policing to be, you know, a, a horrible concept, but a, but a very interesting one as well, because I you know I think. There is this perception or this unconscious biases that a lot of people hold that black men and women um, are scary, you know, and so so it is harder for you to express yourself authentically because you have to control for everybody else's comfort in the room. Like if I well, and I, I mean, tell me if that's correct, but like that, that at least is what I have seen. Um, In my experience, you know, people being more apt to say, oh, well, she, you know, raised her voice a little bit. She's a she's an angry, scary black woman. You know, is that is that part of your experience? Is that have you found that?
1: Absolutely. That is absolutely a persona assigned to black women and oftentimes women of color, period, but specifically black women, that's my lived experience. And that was something that prior to me, again, launching the complaint, I had no problems with my former employer. That was the part that really shook me at the time. I had nothing in my personnel file. It wasn't until I said, hey, why not me? And um, I went and filed the EEOC that all of a sudden I became the problem. Then all of a sudden sure. the tone of my voice became the problem. And um, the, again, at the time I didn't even have the words for it. So I didn't understand why when I was talking about the use of file video, why I was reprimanded for the tone of my voice and ultimately suspended for two days. Not because I yelled, not because I cursed my, my, my manager or news director out. It was because they found the tone of my voice so egregious in nature that it warranted an immediate suspension. And so going through that and living through that, it's almost like this weird shock and awe campaign because I didn't know then what I know now. So at the time, I'm like, what do you what did I say? And I honestly was looking for answers from my news director at the time. And she said my tone was so egregious in nature. And I did not get it. I did not get it. Now I get it. Now I understand that I was simply challenging that uh, social construct. I was challenging the fact that as a black woman of my stature, that uh, my job was to be on the weekend as a reporter. job was to be that bulldog reporter. And so if I thought yeah. I was going to move into an, an anchor position, or if I thought I was going to move into an investigative role position, which is a higher paying Monday through Friday job, that that was problematic for them. And me merely asking them and then challenging them to come up with a real answer was uncomfortable. That would enact the fragility. And so that's where um, that that just the evolution of self and that learning happened for me to where I had to get it. But that was a, a lot. I mean, that was years from the time of this happening to me and me understanding what was going on. And so the trauma of going through that and not understanding what was wrong with me. Like what did I do? I didn't understand it. And so that means even after my two day suspension, I'm going back to the newsroom. I'm back in the newsroom meetings. And so I'm so scared to even voice my concerns, to pitch my stories with any level of passion, because I'm where I don't know at what point does my tone become become offensive, which ends up right. being a controlling mechanism too. So now that you have punished me for my tone and I don't understand what It was wrong with my tone. That means when I show up in the meetings, when I'm in the newsroom, I'm constantly policing myself. I'm constantly going smaller and smaller and smaller to make sure I'm not offending my white female superiors. Okay. Making sure my tone is not offensive because I didn't know I was offensive the first time. So I don't know when I'm going to be offensive again. And so that forces me to walk on eggshells in a very controlled state of being in my newsroom. And that's exactly what I believe was the outcome that they wanted. They wanted me to basically to find my place, to get back in my place, which means and be quiet for sure exactly exactly and and
0: and I and I I will say like I'm gonna draw a parallel and I'm not saying that the experience is in any way um the same but so so when you're talking about that being that concerned so so that's um code switching right like changing your behavior based on the environment in which you're, you're in. And so, so the parallel that I draw, and this is like a, this is a a silly thing in the scope of what we're talking about. But you know, when I, when I worked in, well, when I worked anywhere, um, I was often the only female manager at the table. And I was always asked to write the notes for meetings because I quote unquote had the best handwriting, but here's the thing. When I'm writing notes, I'm focused on that rather than focused on contributing to the conversation and showing up as my best self in a meeting, which as a manager, that's something that you have to be able to do. And so I imagine that constantly having to like check yourself, like, what's my tone like? Am I scaring this white lady in front of me? Um, You know, that's got to be very distracting. And it has to, I, I would imagine, did it take away from your your work experience? Like, were you able to pour yourself fully into, into your work or Absolutely. Did it interfere?
1: Absolutely. It interfered. I got to the place where I would honestly give story ideas to other reporters and have them pitch them because I knew that they would be received more favorably than I was at the time. And again, these were just, um, survival tactics. So I can get through the newsroom meeting. I can be here. I can be in space and be, and do my job. I didn't realize at the time that all like the words that I have now with the code switching, the words that I have now um, were not the words that I had then. But at the time, these were just ways of me being able to continue to exist in space. And I do think the intentionality from my super, my supervisors at the time was real too. I knew I think they knew what they were doing. It was again, their way of threatening me and making me feel uncomfortable and powerless so that I'm mindful of the words that come out of my mouth. I'm very mindful as to, to make sure that everyone in the space is comfortable because I knew that if I made them uncomfortable, that that could be my job. And in fact, I was suspended for two days for the tone of my voice. And that was my first and final, like I did not have a written, I didn't have an oral, none of the no oral, you know, warnings. It was yeah. just that. And so they knew now I would be afraid now I moving forward, I would go. So I would do such in fear, you know, and they knew that I was a primary breadwinner too. I mean, my check mattered in my household. And so yeah. they knew that would be enough to get me to, you know, just to sit there in fear and move out of my fear and be very mindful of making sure that they're no longer uncomfortable with my, my presence.
0: Yeah. I, I am so, so sorry that, that that happened to you that it, and really it's, it's not even that it's, it's a whole journey of, I'm so sorry that all of these things happened to you and that you had to exist in an environment that didn't, um, allow you to own yourself fully and show up as you, like that, it, that just sucks. Um, you know, and, and, and I do, I have a really good question, but first, you know, we're talking about a lot of really, uh, we're talking about some tough stuff. And, and I think, you know, you mentioned people being uncomfortable a little earlier. And I, I think that discomfort, like, that's not a bad thing. Um, comfort is the enemy of progress, Right. And so, so when we're talking about HR issues, when we're talking about having a trusted advisor to help you navigate through some of these things, I do want to mention, you know, let's take a moment to thank today's episode sponsor, Trinet. Uh, whether you have full-time or part-time employees in one state or many states, each Scenario has unique requirements. So Trinet gives you accurate, compliant payroll, complete with secure processing, tax withholding and reporting, all on a single platform with benefits. So it helps you take better care of your employees. At the end of the day, it's about paying people on time without distracting hassles, which everybody loves. Everybody wants to be paid on time. You can co- connect directly with Trinet through our point of contact, Maria Redman on LinkedIn. Um, and, and, all right. So, so, so here's my question to you. If you could talk to your previous bosses today knowing what you know because you 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 said that you said earlier that like you didn't know what you know now and you wish you had now that you know what you know what would you say to them
1: That's an interesting question. Honestly, I just think it's very important for all organizations to go through diversity and unconscious bias training. I think that should be the very foundation in which we build this house when we talk about um, the reality of this social construct that we call work. Right, because when you look at our world today, even Kansas City specifically, um, perfectly, honestly, we're a very segregated people. When we talk about our church spaces, when we talk about our home spaces and our neighborhoods, we're very segregated. We integrate at school, we integrate at work. And so if we're going to um, force this social construct of production and workspaces, we have to be mindful that we're asking people who don't choose to honestly be around each other to be around each other and bring their best, most productive selves. And so when we deal with that reality, that needs to start with some real diversity training that includes unconscious bias trainings, which means I need to be able to unpack and see how I see the people in my world. and I need to understand how my lived experiences, my childhood, the things that I've um, lived through, the things that I've seen impacts the people around me. So if I'm not used to being around people of diverse backgrounds or diverse lived experiences, I have to know that. and I have to be mindful of how my mind is showing up and my the way I'm responding to people. And I think unconscious bias training is a great way to start that conversation, that introspective work that has to be done so that I'm mindful as to the impact I'm having on the people around me. And so I think that is a huge starting point for any corporation, you know, whether they have three employees or, 30,000 employees, because this is a self-policing work, okay? It should have been someone along that white solidarity that got, I went from sharing an article on Facebook to getting suspended and ultimately fired and accused of creating a hostile work environment as a black woman who read some stuff, right? I read some stuff and I shared on social media and that created a hostile work environment. And so the idea that no one along that journey said, wait a minute, are we really punishing someone for reading we're punishing a journalist who yeah. read an article from the guardian which is a reputable news organization and shared yeah. it why is it that no one along that journey said wait a minute hmm should we really do this does this make any sense because well, we're not not
0: only that like nobody was applauding you for saying hey as a journalist you are sharing important information with with your constituents with your readers with your your viewers you know they that's important. Um, and I, I mean, I, I applaud you for having the courage to to do that. But the fact not I mean, you were talking about the fact like, okay, well, maybe nobody stepped in and said, hey, we should stop this. But I'm like, how come nobody was saying she's doing exactly what she should be doing, which is sparking important conversation, informing the public, you know, like all of these amazing things that journalists are supposed
1: to do. I think (laughs) now we are at a place where we're willing to look at amplifying the voices of marginalized people as a plus, but when I did this, which would have been back in 18, we were not having these conversations and those were absolutely the voices of women of color. Ruby Hamad, an Australian uh, journalist is actually a Middle Eastern woman. So it wasn't even like she was a black woman, but she was amplifying the voices of other and the lived experiences of other women of color. And so back in 18, which is not that far away, wasn't that far long ago, we were not valuing the voices of women of color. We were not their lived experiences. In fact, the fact that the two employees who saw the article and they were so offended by it, and it went up the food chain to another white male HR executive, another white male general manager, and then of course my uh, news director at the time, no one said, hey, wait a minute, what is wrong? with hearing the lived experiences or reading about the lived experiences of people who are not white. But that was absolutely problematic. In fact, the fact that I was suspended for creating a hostile work environment work environment. Yeah. They're saying the fact that I read that and shared it on social media changed the very environment in which I worked and made it uncomfortable for my two white female coworkers. And that's why I could not come back on the premises. Like they suspended me immediately. And in fact, to this day, I've not stepped foot back in that newsroom because in fact, they wouldn't even let me come back up my desk because that's how much of a threat I became to that work environment because I read an article and shared it. And so it, that's a reality of race in this country though. That's a reality of the fragility that comes along with race. And I know that now, but at the time I did not get it. I honestly did not get it. I remember going through my Facebook page and just unfriending all of my friends, all of my coworkers, because I had no idea what was happening to me. I had no idea. And these were my coworkers who were my friends. I we gone to weddings together. We were gone, you know, we've done the coffee thing together. We've done the wine thing together. Like these are people I thought were my friends. And so I didn't, under, I didn't know where the next hit was coming from the next attack was coming from. So I remember um, just unfriending people everyone everyone was just unfriended because i didn't know what was going on and one of my co-workers who was actually the banker at the time reached out to me and was like lisa why did you unfriend me and at the time i didn't have the words to tell her so i didn't even respond to it but now i know it was because i can no longer trust you i can no longer yeah. trust you because i didn't know where the next hit was coming from i didn't know what was going to happen next and so that's the part of this entire journey that i think that i everyone has to be willing to get on this learning journey. And I do see it as a learning journey, which is why I don't actually have any anger, resentment, or blame or shame attached to it because we're all socialized in this space to where we're not willing to deal with the reality of the racial construct. We're not willing to deal with the reality of who's being raced in this country, which I'm a part of that, those people, my identity is absolutely squarely attached to my race. And now I get now for my white coworkers, that was not their truth back in 2018. And so I do think we're in 2021, we're willing to talk about why not why are some of us raced as a a people and some people not? And why are we not willing to uh, really unpack the reality of race when it comes to people of color and the reality of race when we're talking about white people? And those are conversations we weren't having. So I was uber uncomfortable, as were my coworkers, um, who were not amongst the reporting crew. But now I'm at a place which is why I'm so happy and I'm so grateful and I'm so passionate about the work that I'm doing. Because now through my company, Winning Truth International, I am the agitator. I'm now. I show up in corporate spaces and nonprofit spaces, and I'm the agitator. I'm that thing that sits in your washer to make sure you get the dirt out of it. I'm yeah. the agitator now because I'm the one that will ask the questions. I'm the one that will press in and make sure that people are willing to do that self work, that introspective look at how they see the people, the people in their world. And those sure. identity groups are again, race and gender are huge. You know, any woman in this country knows, including Liz Cheney, every woman in this country knows yeah. that their womanhood shows up before, I mean, it shows up and any black woman or any woman of color understands her race shows up before her gender. And so now we have to be able to really see the unseen, you know, speak about the unspoken and understand why. Why are we doing this? And then want to be mindful as to whether or not we want to continue to do that. Do we want to continue to define people based on their gender, their race and their different identity groups? Or do we want to be willing to do the work to make sure when we're looking at people, we're looking at them eye to eye as fellow humans, as fellow humans along this journey that we're on together. And again, most of these trainings that I'm doing are in the workspace or nonprofit spaces. But really, again, this is introspective work. How do I see the people in my world? How do I treat the people in my world who don't simply live in the same neighborhood? My kids don't go to the same school. We don't drive the same cars, but we do share the same humanity. Am I I, I treating them them as fellow humans? And so that's why I love the work that I'm doing. I love the fact that I'm now a part of this movement of people who want to really celebrate differences and reject this perfect assimilation that we have going on the most the more as a person of color you can assimilate to majority white culture the more accepted you are we have to really be willing to buck that and be willing to allow people to bring their best selves to work their best selves to play so that people can really just feel again that they are a part they belong and a part of this culture they belong in the climate in which we exist and so again i'm just I love doing the work and I love being an agitator.
0: Yeah. Well, you're, you're, you're excellent at it. I mean, I've heard you speak several times and I, I, I love hearing you speak because you, I don't know, you just, you really know how to make a point. It's the journalist in you, I'm sure. But um, thank you. And, and, I, and I do, you know, one of the things that I, I love to hear about is that celebrating employee differences part, you know, in, in creating an inclusive workplace, like I think that that's crucially important, um, you know, and, and I'll be perfectly frank, like, I mean, I've had some pretty I've had some highly gendered experiences throughout the course of my career. And I have to tell you, like people are, when people say things like I don't see color, I don't care if you're male or female, like that actually bugs me. Like I want people to look at me and say, Hey, you know, I see you and I see that you have probably had to fight just a little bit harder because of who you are and where you came from. and, And I respect that. And, you know, as an intersectional woman, a woman of color, a black woman, um is that the same for you? Like, do you want people to look at you and see, like, yeah, I've struggled. I've, you know, that this is a part of my identity and who I am
1: absolutely, because it's not the idea of not seeing color, which means you're not seeing the reality of what it, how my race does impact the opportunities that are are, are not presented to me. that are not available to me. Yeah. And so it's not, you know, we are so socialized, again, not to even want to talk about race. But the reality, when I show up into a room, you see a Black woman. You don't see a woman woman. You see a Black woman. You don't even see a woman Black. It is a Black woman, which means my race shows up before my gender. That's just the truth of the society in which we live in. And so instead of us denying that by saying, I don't see color, let's change the truth. Let's change the reality. Let us get to a place in this nation in which my race is not a determinant, does not determine outcomes. And that's true. When you talk about the education system, when you talk about entrepreneurship, when you talk about the business sector, when we talk about the criminal justice system, race is an issue. So let's not pretend yeah. like it's not and we know that it is. So instead, let's do the work in changing the reality of those outcomes instead of us pretending as though it's not there because we know it's there. You yeah. see it. And so let's confront it again. You know, the work, a lot of the work is really making the unseen scene and being willing to have those courageous conversations, if you will, to change the outcomes and figure out how race is impacting all these different structures and these institutions that we all need. And that we're all a part of.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and, Yes, like everything you say, I'm just like yes. So, so what are what are some other ways that our our listeners at home? Oh, actually, you know what? I want to. Would you allow me to hop up on a soapbox for just a second?
1: Go for it. I love this. Dri- this I drives it. me
0: crazy, and I feel like this is like the perfect opportunity to mention it when we're talking about. Um, oh, you know we we have two higher high, candidates in the pipeline. Um, And we say, well, one of them's a black woman, one of them's a white male. Let us stop saying, please, like this is for you listeners at home. I am am issuing you a challenge. Next time that happens to you and somebody says, oh, yeah, we would love to see representation. We would love to see a black woman hired. Let's stop saying, well, I don't care. I just want to see the most qualified because there is a tacit, unsaid nugget in there. That you can't be a black woman and also be the most qualified. (laughs) Let's stop saying that. Just stop it. (laughs) Anyway, sorry. That was my little. No, I appreciate that. You're so right. It's crazy. Yes. Irritates the crap out of me. Like, all right, please don't listeners. Please don't say that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> All right. Excellent. Excellent. That was an excellent soapbox. I <laughs> <Okay>. agree.
0: <laughs> anyway, so so a little tangent. I, I've been holding that in like my back pocket. I'm like, some episode I'm gonna get to say that. Um now, what are some other ways that employers, um, you know, our listeners at home, what are some other ways that they can build an inclusive, truly inclusive work, workplace?
1: Employers, like, well, yeah. I think that one, like I said, I think the training and just normalizing the conversation is always day one because we are socialized not to talk about these things. And so it does have to be a top-down, bottom-up approach, which means executive leadership has to be on board because they ha- the buy-in has to be there in order to create the psychological safety that the employees are gonna need because for someone of a diverse background and understanding my game is race because I, I'm a race to people. I'm a part of a race to people. But when sure. you talk about the areas of identity, we're talking about disability. We're talking about age. We're talking about late language. We're talking about socioeconomics or other uh, areas of identity and bias that, you know, that intersect that are relevant in the workplace. And so we have to get to the place where we are normalizing the conversation. We're getting to the place we're willing to see it. We're willing to talk about it. And so the the folks in these marginalized communities feel like they are free to bring their best authentic selves to work. And again, much like you just said, that doesn't mean that's a challenge to standards. That doesn't mean there's a challenge to quality, but there should be a difference, which means we don't have to necessarily, assimilate to the same thing. We don't have to have the same ideas because you'll find people, and I can remember even in my in the newsroom, you'll have different differing ideas, but you don't feel free to share them because they don't necessarily go in line with whatever she just said or whatever he just said. But So you don't feel necessarily you're going to be supported or included in this conversation. So you tend to kind of hold back ideas that don't support that of the majority space because you don't want to be ostracized. You don't want to be picked apart. And so we have to change the climate and the culture in such a way that people do feel as though their unique ideas their unique perspectives have value and again we start that with the training with normalizing the conversations and then of course we have to get to the accountability right we have got to get to the place where we are seeing the data we're seeing the numbers and we're holding people accountable in fact incentivize it when we talk about diverse talent when we talk about the history of exclusion in this country it was very intentional very intentional. Sure. So we have to be very intentional when we talk about creating more inclusive climates, more diverse climates. We have to go after it. We have to be intentional because the very same people were saying now in 2021, yeah, we want more diverse talent in our in our talent pool. We're not going to where they are. So we have to be intentional about making sure that we're not going to the same watering holes, hoping to get a different or more diverse talent pool. We have to plug into maybe the HBCUs, plug into organizations where you're seeing more diverse talent and um, yeah. uh, people of different, differing backgrounds. And so that you're giving them the same opportunities, you know, you're making sure those opportunities are available to people of differing backgrounds. And so that's a huge part of this, essentially being willing to kind of do something different, you know, when you want to yeah. have different outcomes, you have to be willing to do something a little different, you know, opening yourself up or your company up to different talent pools and different organizations will absolutely land you in a place to where at least you have more diversity within your talent pool. Now, who you ultimately end up with will still be based on clearly the job specifications, but at least you have more people of diverse backgrounds at least applying for the jobs
0: yeah well and 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 so one of the things that I talk about frequently because because you know i I always view things through the women lens of course that's that's my experience mm-hmm. um and and people reach out to me all the time and they're like how come we don't have more women applying for tech jobs how come we don't have more women on our board blah 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 <laughs> and I, I'm like I have about six answers for that question right out the gate but my my question to you is if I invest my time and I invest my you know expertise in kind of helping you through this and answering this question, what are you prepared to do about it? Because um, I feel like there is this this percent or this belief out there that like oh, as long as we say that we we foster a diverse like we we believe in diversity and we're an EEOC employer, like we just have to say it. But this is not a field of dreams, if you build it, they will come kind of thing. Like it takes active, everyday work to create an inclusive. Creating inclusion always requires more time, energy, or resources. So when you're talking about reaching out to new sources for hiring pipelines, sometimes that requires money. It requires research. It requires money. Um, you know, when we're talking about, um, you know, finding those racial equity trainers, or one of the things that I do want to talk about, you had mentioned um in your, the information that you sent over before the show, like creating an inclusion council, um, you know? Uh, and so I wanna talk to you a little bit about that, um, but it, it's always gonna require more work. So if you are truly, truly committed to not just diversity, but inclusion, making sure that if you hire folks um, from marginalized communities that you are not setting them up to fail, by not having support structure in place, by not being able to offer um, an environment of psychological safety. Um, you know, th- this is all for nothing. And, and so let's not let's not do that. Um, so, so talk to us about this inclusion council, because I, I have a follow up question, but I, I want to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Well, one, I do agree with you. It's going to take more work, which includes, which is why it's so important to have committees and task force and councils or um, employee resource groups to where they're focused on this. And I do agree, it's going to take more work, but so does losing weight. So does yeah. making more money. So does building business. Everything that you want, when you talk about, you stay focused on the long game, it's always going to take more work, but you understand the benefit of it, which is yeah. why, again, the building blocks of this conversation are so important. One, we have to see the introspective part of it. What, what's my role in this? What am I doing? Okay, then we have to see the benefits of it, because there are real tangible benefits to having more inclusive and diverse cultures, whether that's innovation, creativity, when you talk about the bottom line, you're making more money, you're attracting more consumers. And when you talk about really the workforce breakdown now, when you talk about the baby boomers, the Gen, gen Xers, the Gen Yers, they are going, they're calling for, they're demanding that employers are more accountable. Having When you talk about their even their social footprints, their social justice footprint, you Talk our younger generations are holding them more accountable, and then you, when you talk about even holding on to your talent, right? You're getting these great people in the door, but they're not staying. You know why? Because they don't feel like they're a part of the culture, they're a part of the climate. And so, all of these are realities of not really fostering an inclusive, equitable environment. And so, once we get again our decision makers, our executive leaders on board, understanding the benefits of DEI, the benefits of creating more inclusive cultures, then we can do the work because we understand we're working towards something. When you get up and you run, when you go to Zumba class, whatever you're doing, you know that you're working towards a better body, right? You have an outcome in mind. So we have to start this journey with our outcome. We have to play the long game on this too, understanding when we get there, it's going to better serve the organization, the company, the nonprofit. But the journey has to be in the education. The learning journey starts with why why is this important? And there was a time, even when I started my conversation to where it felt like it was a, a thing for people of color, right? It mattered to me because I wanted to feel as though I value, I was valued in the newsroom. It mattered because I wanted the same opportunities to make more money and provide for my family that was afforded to my coworkers. But now we're seeing now the business benefits of it, the innovation, creativity, yeah. the, the bottom line. When you talk about the global f- footprint for companies, being able to have someone on your team who can connect with people of diverse backgrounds across, across the globe now you're seeing businesses and corporations say you know what yeah we have to get in this this does matter yeah. and it's sad that we couldn't hit this from a human perspective the idea that everyone within your organization should have the same opportunities for growth and advancement but we didn't hit it we didn't get there we didn't get there from the love bug but we can't right. get there from the financial money making bug you know and the opportunity because we there's no employer in this in this city town country that didn't understand the impact of turnover right you bring people in you get them trained to do the job and they don't want to be there time and time again, they don't want to be there. And so we understand there is a financial impact to that. And so as we're kind of unpacking that and getting the data to support that, we're having more and more com- corporations saying, you know what, let's figure this thing out because we are wasting money. We are losing valuable assets. We're, we're losing valuable talent because we're not creating a climate and a culture in which people want to be here with us. And as yeah. you know, and definitely I know from my former uh, employer that you spend more time with your coworkers than you do your family, right? I definitely feel like I've learned my husband so much more after got fired. Right. I'm like, right. You know, I don't even know if I like you like that no more, you know?
0: Like, <laughs> <So> <laughs> it's it's <laughs>
1: crazy how you don't realize how much time of your life is, you know, it was really donated, not donated, but is sacrificed in the name of yeah. work. And so the employers have to get that too. That's a huge part of your identity even. I mean, you know, even me shifting from what I'm doing now from being in television news, it's like, who am I? If I'm not television news reporter slash anchor, Lisa Benson? who am I? And so all of that is true. And that was true for me and my industry, but that's true across the board. And so since we have people who are willing to dedicate and invest so much time into your company, into your industry, into building your dream as the corporate CEO, as the owner of the business, why would you not wanna create a culture in which they want to be there? And they want to bring their best selves to pursue your interests, to build your business, to to make to pursue your outcomes, to achieve your outcomes. And so I just think that companies, corporations and CEOs and our executive senior leadership teams really have to step back and understand the value add of doing the work. Yeah,
0: well, Oh God, I have like five more questions to answer, ask you, but we, we, we have actually come up, we're, we're actually a little over time. So thank you <laughs> listeners, for sticking with us. Um, I do have one final question for you though. Um, who are, who are your heroes? I just, I want to know, like, do you, have, give us two or three people that have inspired you?
1: Wow. That's a good one. Stacey Abrams, you know, her oh, being yeah. used. Yeah, it's. It's huge. You know, it's like to be able to take that L and keep on fighting, you know, to be in a place where you feel like you have taken true loss, you have been um, disenfranchised, you've been wronged. But to take that same energy, that same hurt and pain and to turn around in such a slow and stealthy way to where you force not only a victory for yourself, but you force a victory for those around you. Um, She's a huge one, obviously. Kamala. It's interesting
0: yeah. that you two have such paralleled, like very different experiences, but very paralleled experiences. But okay, so maybe maybe you're her hero.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, and the thing is, it's crazy because when you, it is, it's like trying to thrive through the pain. Like it's a, re- a very personal, and then understanding we all being humans, you know, you want to be a part of something to be fully rejected, to say you yeah. don't fit here, you don't belong here. You know, it, it really does hurt in such a personal and intimate way, and so her whole journey and the way that it just showed up on the national stage, it's like, wow, she did that. And then it was so stealth to so where if you're not on the ground with her, you don't know the work that's being done. Um, that's right. huge. Um, and there's so many. Michelle Obama is another one, just for her being a huge career woman, like reading her book, becoming Michelle Obama to understand that she was she was heat. Like the fact that she's a little bit older than Barack And the fact that she had her whole career, she grew up, you know, um, not in a wealthy family, but one that focused on education. She achieved her goals at um, amazing standards, but to get to a place where she had to make the decision that so many women have to make, which goes back to the conversation we were having earlier about women on boards. We haven't even got to the place where we're really talking about the reality of work-life balance. I mean, that was the weird byproduct of this whole COVID thing is that women were able to be at work, do some work, and then pay attention to their family. And they got to- they were forced to really name their priority because COVID forced us to do that. But back to Michelle Obama, the fact that she was saying, well, I know like, it's like crazy. All the things that women have to go through in order to have this balance, this thing that we're trying to have these careers, this family, and these are all very important things because if women didn't do their woman thing, we would all be extinct too. Cause you know, we got to do that whole making babies things. If those of us who want to, but that's a huge part of the continuing, you know, humans. It's so. definitely <laughs> very,
0: a very valid, very important part. Yeah. A, of, a lot of, of you know, people, somebody got to make the babies. I get it.
1: I get it. Yeah, it is one thing well, to make the baby, someone else to raise the baby, since somebody got to raise them. You know, it's weird. For sure, so, yeah. yeah, so all that. Michelle Obama is definitely a huge one, just watching her to be able to stay. It's almost like the weird a little bit of a slinking back because her husband clearly was the president, but at the same time, owning her very own identity and being true to herself along this journey of us watching her as a wife and a mother along the way too. So yeah. there's just so many women, but that is definitely- I know.
0: She, well, I mean, Michelle, she's amazing. And her arms, of course, like I want her arms. Um, yeah, well, I, I have to tell you, Lisa, it has, it has been a, a true pleasure. Thank you so much for for being with us here today. Um, you know, very important conversation, you know, for, for some of our listeners and the folks playing at home, there were probably some uncomfortable truths that were shared and that's okay. Discomfort is okay. Comfort is the, the enemy of progress like that. I firmly believe that. Uh, but thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed the conversation.
0: Well, good, good. Once again, today's episode of Start a Puzzle was sponsored by Trinet. With Trinet, it's easy to access the benefits you need to hire and keep great people. They not only offer a range of plans, but also leading insurance carriers in your market, which is crucially important. Learn more about Trinet by visiting Trinet.com or connect directly with their rep at maria.redman, that's R-E-D-M-A-N, at Trinet.com. Also want to mention, uh, if you just can't get enough of Start a Puzzle, I don't know if you've heard, But we did actually start our own TV show about entrepreneurship. So head on over to YouTube, search for Startup Hustle, and you can watch myself and our fellow founder cast members share the real story of what it takes to start, build, and grow a business. And it is not always easy. And I have cried on the show. So if you want to see me cry, there you go. Uh, But listeners, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedules to give us a listen. And we will catch you next time.
1: Bye. Thank you.